Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. As I've already mentioned, 2023 has been a big year on The Crime Couch. We've featured some intriguing and fascinating current and retired police members and other interesting individuals. This is part two of a two-parter, featuring the best of my interviewees this year. Ian Dos Dossa is an experienced decorated Victoria Police former Detective Chief Inspector with 33 years under his belt. He worked in many crime squads, including the homicide and major crime squads. Going back to the majors, why do you think they had such an infamous reputation and was it deserved? It's a situation... If something drastic happened within uh, Victoria and um, command crime command decided that you know this is this is a, a serious job and we need instant action and we don't need and I'm not certainly not putting uh, local detectives down but they need someone that would be more um, robust in the investigation uh, and and the majors and this goes as well as the armed robbery squad the men in there. Um, the majority of them were all dedicated, hard-working men that weren't prepared to, well, put it bluntly, they took no shit. So, um, you know, if you, again, if you're looking for an SKP, um, you don't knock on the door and say, Billy, will you come outside? You know, it was a situation where it was rip, shit and bust. You'd go in through the door with a nine-pound key and loaded firearms, and, and the purpose of that was obviously to catch the crook at, inopportune moment in bed and it was uh, I think I was probably in the majors for four years and as I said there were some uh, great detectives there Um, but um, I'm I'm sort of tending now to believe that uh, towards well I'm not just saying because I left but later on they tended to get a little bit too big for their boots. Um, Is that why they were disbanded? I don't know the official reason, but I I would suggest, yes, they were. Uh, And it's a situation, you know, when you're dealing with professional criminals and and the same with members of the drug squad, if there's large sums of money involved and uh, it always is the temptation or the corruption or the, sorry, the the potential for corruption for members, and that was quite evident. um, you know, there's quite a few members now that have been charged with uh, dishonesty and corruptions as a result of their time at the major crime and or the drug squad. But if you uh, if you were an honest, hard-working copper, which, as I said, the majority were, um, you had no fear, you just done the job and it gave you, again, a great satisfaction when you locked up a crook, an escapee, you locked up a crook for a large burglary. Um, it was good. I enjoyed it. 
another one that sticks in my mind is it was in April 86. Uh, we were the on-call crew and we got a call to a, a car fire at Arundel Road Bridge in Keeler. And the suspicion was that there, there was a body in that car. So we went there, um, like attended the scene and do the usual uh, business that you do there. And it was ascertained that the deceased was a young girl who worked at Safeway in Gladstone Park. She'd been stabbed seven times and then incinerated in the car. As part of the investigation, we went to Safeway at Gladstone Park and interviewed all the staff. We interviewed one of the suspects who was the assistant manager. I think I can say his name is Stephen James Hunter. I was going to say when we were interviewing him, he was as toey as a Roman sandal. He was sweating and carrying on. And eventually we took him into custody and interviewed him. And the short version is that, uh, yes, they were working well, I call it the night shift, the late shift. He was a, an assistant manager and the girl was a cash register operator. And somehow the offer became that he would drive her home and it's alleged, or we alleged, that during that trip home he put the hard word on her for sex and she uh, refused. Uh, he spat the dummy and lost it and stabbed her. And always remember, it wasn't, uh, you think, what did he stab her with? You think as a packer, you may recall, they have like a little Stanley knife that they use to open the cardboard cartons. He stabbed her seven times in the throat and the neck with that, then uh, decided that he uh, better get rid of the evidence, so he uh, set the car on fire and incinerated the girl. Why I remember him was that he got convicted. I think he'd done 12 years for that crime. Upon his release, he was then charged with another murder and I don't have an intimate knowledge of that murder, but it was, again, uh, a murder in Keeler, and I think the deceased's name was Kafaki or something like that. So he was charged with her murder and convicted of that, and uh, he's still in doing time for that. So, I mean... He got his fair whack. He did get his fair whack, and, you know, you, you say recidivism for murderers is, is not that popular, but uh, he, he sort of proved that theory. So it was good to see Stephen James Hunter get his just deserves. Jeff Shepard was a highly skilled detective working in the Homicide Squad when he received a heavenly calling. Jeff, at the end of a big day, one of your former homicide colleagues, Andrew Guski, recalled to me that while he was tucking into a meat pizza and too many beers, he looked over and he noticed that you were reading a Bible. When did you get the calling, Jeff? Wow. I'm imagining, I don't remember the exact story, I'm imagining that we were probably away somewhere by the sound of it, we're probably in a, in a hotel room or something like that. Look, I, I was reading the Bible since I, was a, since I was a kid, you know. It was part of, I was born into a family where I, I was, probably went to church from the first Sunday after I came home from hospital as a baby. And so God and therefore then the Bible, you know, as God's word have always been important to me and they were while I was a police officer that said I loved my job as a police officer and my intention was to stay in it and I remember there was a time back in 1987 not long after I graduated and I got called unexpectedly 
into the chief commissioner's office. And it was, it was good news. I was finding out some, some good news from him, but it, but it was a total surprise. And I had no idea it was coming. And I was just a really young constable. And it was Mick Miller, the Chief Commissioner Mick Miller, just an incredible man. And I can remember sitting there and he, he asked me, how do you take your tea? And at the time, I don't, I don't think I even drink, drunk tea at the time, but I said, oh, just white and one, please, sir. <laughs> and, and, um, and we were sitting there talking. I can still remember sitting in his office looking out over Melbourne. And he said to me, Jeffrey, what would you what would you like to do in the police force? And I, I know it probably sounds arrogant to say it now, but I, I just looked at him and I said, oh, sir, one day I'd like to do your job. <laughs> and and he, he liked that. He, he thought that was great, you know. So that was my ambition. I wanted to try and try and go as far as I could go. I loved being a, a police officer. I loved being a detective. I loved it all. But also at the same time, I loved... Uh, like I certainly certainly had a strong relationship with God, and that was that was the the center of my life. And then I used to I used to get asked to go and speak at camps and at churches. And when you would go to do that, if you're a cop, you got lots of good stories to tell, you know. And so that was why. And I was young, and and so as I did that, I just loved it, you know. And so it was always this tug of war of which one do I love more? And I would usually, I would always end up deciding I love the police force more. And then well, you said, when did I get the calling? And it's a long answer to your question. But when I got asked then, I, I got asked to become a youth pastor at the church that I was going to at the time. And, and I just, it took me two months to make the decision. And I was married by then. And so my wife was, was part of it. And it's the hardest decision I ever made in my life because I just absolutely loved what I did in the police force. But I had to sit there and assess over that two months what is most important to me and how can how do I believe all the information at my fingertips, how do I believe I can make the most difference to help and, and to, to help make this world a better place and to help in, in my case there, to help people to have the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus, you know? Um, how can I do that? Jeff Tullock is a former colleague of my dear father Bill and a former Victoria Police Superintendent. He loved his job, but his real passion is his aerial square four motorbike. When did your love affair with the motorbike, when did that begin? Probably at 17 years of age, my father had a business in New South Wales and uh, to go around and collect orders from the horticulturists in the district, I, he bought me a little 250cc BSA motorcycle and I used to ride around and knock on the door and get a grocery order, go back the next day and deliver it. What do you love and what do you enjoy about riding a motorbike? Probably in those days, to start my enthusiasm for motorcycles, we didn't have the money to buy a car. So a push bike or a motorcycle was the first conveyance that we got used to and free and easy, go wherever you like, whenever you like. Your friends all had motorbikes and it was a very enjoyable experience, particularly in the country. And you were a country boy, weren't you? Yes, I came from the Sunraysia district, uh, living... Uh, between Mildura and Wentworth at a um, New South Wales town called Kumiella. 
You also rode a very powerful motorbike when you were in the mobile traffic section, a 1958 Aerial Square 4, which you often speak about with a great deal of affection. What does that bike mean to you, Jeff? Probably means a fair bit because it was the first and most powerful bike that the Victoria Police ever purchased. Four cylinders, uh, 1,000 cubic centimetre capacity in the cylinders, and the fastest bike on the road probably in Australia at the time. And uh, it was exhilarating to ride. It was fast. Um, and in those days, we didn't. We had a police siren on the bike, but we didn't have uh, some of the other accoutrements that they have on the more modern police bikes. I notice it's got a visor. Does it have any sort of bags or like carry bags? Or what makes it a such a specific and interesting sort of a, a motorbike? I think the uh, it weighed a quarter of a ton. Probably the fact it was the first four-cylinder motorcycle ever used in Australia uh, for police work and at a 1,000 cubic centimetres, it was mighty fast, uh, way over 100 miles per hour with ease. How fast did you get it up to? Well, <laughs> be honest. <laughs> I did get it up pretty fast at one stage, and one I regret having done, but I got away with it. I was chasing the motorist in Burwood Road at 100 miles an hour on a police motorbike, and that's about 150 feet a second. Had anything gone wrong, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Ed Pollard is a man of many talents, working as an observer in the police air wing before becoming a police prosecutor and specialising in disaster victim identification. You worked as an observer in the air wing, Ed, what were your highlights? And I love particular in the notes that you sent me originally for this interview, you described yourself as a human teabag. Can you explain what that means? Well, part of the observer's duty is the winch operator and a winch, someone has to go down on the winch. And there's one night we went out to Bass Strait because there was a boat in trouble. And I was sitting in the back of the helicopter in a wetsuit. And at that stage it was proposed to drop me into Bass Strait to try and rescue people out of the life raft. And so I describe myself as a teabag, that's exactly what we've been doing, dunked into the water. And the other thing about the air wing, we navigated with the Melways on our knees. No GPS or anything like that. So it was a case of setting the pilot off to a major like um, Doncaster Shopping Centre or the Westgate Bridge and then you're madly trying to find the streets until they go here and circle there and there and stuff. And people would say, you're looking out for a red Commodore. It's amazing how many red Commodores suddenly exist <laughs> I bet, and no Google Maps, I'd imagine, in those days. Oh, no, it's just Melrose, that's all. And they had um, aviation maps for the rural jobs. It was an interesting job, great job. What were some of the good things you loved about working as an observer? Just the, the places you flew to. It was fantastic. Like, you're going up to Mount Buller. We did a training exercise up there for a few days, or down to Pambula Beach, or down across, flying across Western Port Bay, and Port Phillip Bay, stuff like that. And the winching was interesting because as a winch operator, you're controlling the aircraft. You're telling the pilot to move right, move left, stop moving left, stop moving right at the same time, trying to manage the winch down there. So that was a, that was a, a really interesting, fulfilling job, but tough. And a very unusual experience too, I'd imagine, because as you said, you're really reliant on your whole crew, I, I suppose, to keep you safe. Yeah, exactly. It's a team effort. And I remember one pilot said to me one day, we've got dual aircraft, 
air controls here. If I have a heart attack, how are you going to land the aircraft? So let's land the aircraft. So I got to land it once at the airport, which is interesting things like tapping your head and rubbing your belly at the same time, if you know what I mean. I do. You then left the police air wing. Why did you become a police prosecutor, Ed? Oh, look, I'd had several years on the street at busy police stations and I just needed a break. I just needed a change in career. The shift work was starting to get the better of me, night shifts and stuff, and so I thought I'll try something else, a prosecutor. When I was at Mooney Ponds, there was a prosecutions unit at Mooney Ponds. Doesn't not there anymore. So I had a lot of interaction with the prosecutors and I thought, it was an interesting job. I know my dear father, Bill Jackson, was a police prosecutor and it was one of the things he absolutely loved. But he said you'd be thrown a brief the morning that you had to go to court. Is that what occurred? It did. When Calgulio was commissioner, he decided that they needed a specialised prosecutions unit branch. So that was created along with a research and training unit that obviously trained the prosecutors. So, yeah, my early days, I remember the section sergeant was given the briefs and off you go to court next door and off you go and brief. When I was at, when I was at Connie, the, but about a year later that changed. I think that's when the prosecution's branch came into and now got specialist prosecutors because, no disrespect to the section sergeant, but they only got against professionally trained solicitors, defence solicitors. So, wisely, they thought we'll train prosecutors specifically and it gets to the stage now where I think the prosecutions win about 70 or 80% of their cases they they go up in the summary the summary courts. And you're up against defence counsel that are really briefed and are commissioned to do just that one case. That's right yeah like you might be going in with 80 to 100 cases which you're sort of reading off the cuff but mainly it's a summary so you, if you go to contest then you get time to prepare for it but you're right you're up against uh, solicitors being briefed for a sp- specific case. So, yeah, it's interesting. One of the most fascinating interviewees this year was Kevin Kev Collister. He spent more than 30 years in the military, prison sector and the emergency services dog squad, wrangling with Australia's most dangerous crims. In your role in the prisons, you you faced armed offenders, you faced hostage situations and dangerous individuals. What's been, do you recall, the most dangerous and challenging situation? Yeah, well, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. Um, One that comes to mind is a a gentleman, an inmate named Greg Brazel. And um, I see a lot of qualities in Greg that I actually don't like him myself. But what happened was they started a new procedure for securing Greg in a cell. I didn't write it, and I was the head defensive tactics instructor. It was written by senior management, and it wasn't the safest way to go about it. He goes to the back of the cell, he kneels down, puts his hand behind his head, uh, and then we restrain him, and there's better ways to do it. So I went on this day, and I didn't really know Greg that well, and there was a scuffle, and physical force had to be used to restrain him. When we got him restrained and cuffed, he spoke to me... um, in words that only he can use. And he very colourfully said to me, if we go through this again, I'm going to have my way with you. And I said, Greg, all you've got to do is do as I ask you to do, and we don't have to do it again. Well, little did I know the stage was set. Greg, triple murderer, armed robber, hostage taker, arsonist, very challenging individual, extraordinarily challenging, and quite dangerous. So Greg and I had run in after running, after running over years, your, your listeners can't see, but I've got a bent finger. That's a little present from Greg. 
on one occasion dealing with some inappropriate behaviour, you spat in my mouth, not once, but twice. I mean, that takes some skill. I was popping him in the back of an escort vehicle. He sat down on the back of the vehicle and kicked me in my knee, hyperextended my knee. He got my mother's and father's home address from the high security unit in this state, just playing with my mind. So we had all these run-ins. I got called in one day after hours with, with the unit. I was on standby, and Greg was threatening to set his cell on fire. I'm negotiating with him through a cell trap where the meals go, and you can secure a prisoner. Uh, he's got his back to me. So, I thought, well, that's quite peculiar. He's probably got something, but what can he have in that cell? And he quickly turned around, he threw a glass jar at the cell trap, smashed into hundreds of shards. The only thing that saved me from serious injury, being blinded, uh, was my reflexes. So I raised my hand, moved my head, the glass hit my cheek, my overalls, my hand, but didn't go in my eyes. Greg then proceeded to set his cell on fire because he thought, well, you'll have to open the door and then I will glass you. But I'm a little bit more highly trained than that. And I waited, we applied chemical agents and smoke, which was already in there. And I didn't open the door until I could hear him in a prone position on the ground. I knew that we had the tactical advantage. I was able to remove him from the cell uh, without injury and secure him. I actually got a commendation for that as well. They're throwing these things away. But Greg turned out to be one of the best life skills coaches I've ever come across. I'm on the roof of a high security unit and Greg's in a yard, an exercise yard. He's separated from other prisoners. So they can't hurt him, he can't hurt them. And he looked up at him and he said, Mr. Collister, we're going to talk. Very serious. This is unlike Greg. And I said, well, what do you want to talk about? He goes, no, it has to be face to face. So this is too serious. And I said, I said, Greg, I'm all over the state. I work in all the prisons. When am I going to see you again? I said, look, if you've got something to say, just say it. And he thought for a moment and he said, Oh, I will. He said, I can't go on like this anymore. And I'm up there and I'm dumbfounded. What, what do you mean, Greg? What, you can't go on like what? He said, well, it's okay for you. You get to go home. You get to do whatever it is you do outside the prison. I don't get to go home. This is my home. He said to me, when I go to bed at night, all I can think of is you. He goes, I get up in the morning, and the first thing that gets in my mind is you. So I've got bigger fish to fry, I can't do it. What he didn't realise is this. I'd be at home, sunny day, kids, mates having a beer. It doesn't get much better than that. But I wasn't at the barbecue. I was stuck in that jail with Greg, telling my mates, if he ever does this, if he ever does that, I'm doing this. And they're saying to me, Kev, what are you doing? He's in jail, you're free. But I wasn't free. So I'm the instructor and he's the inmate. And I looked at him and said, what do we do? What's the answer? And he said to me, not the other way around, Mr. Collister, we can't make this personal anymore. He said, you and I have been attacking each other, accusations. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. He said, you can't change me, can you? I said, no, I can't. He said, I can't change you. So let's accept us for who we are. I get that. Come and do your job because I am not going to stop doing what I'm doing. But when it's over, let it be over. So I said to him, well, I know I can do that. But my concern is, I don't know if you can do that. Exactly. And he said, i got no choice. This is doing my head in. I've got to depersonalise it. Now, the interesting thing was, I didn't feel better seconds later, hours later, days later, 
felt like the whole world just left me. All my anger, my rage, my contempt for Greg was gone. Greg's doing what Greg does because of his nature and nurture, just like me. So he continued to do the job, but it wasn't personal. Trevor Collins spent most of his career dealing with the horror and anguish of road trauma in the Major Collision Investigation Unit. He was passionate and dedicated to ensuring justice was always achieved for the victim of any road trauma. How do you think your police experience, Trevor, set you up to work in the Major Collision Investigation Unit? Gee, that's a difficult one, because I don't think, you know, apart from the serious accidents I had attended that I've already spoken about, I don't think anything really prepares you for what you're going to see. And that's the thing, you know, even when you do the the accident investigation course, you see photos and and things, but nothing as graphic as when you actually get out there and, and see it for yourself. You know, I attended quite a few before I was given the opportunity of taking on an investigation of one and, and, and even my first one was the circumstances uh, were unusual in that um, it was on dark road at a place, uh, Coolart Road down in down the other side of Hastings and uh, as dark as dark, you know, no street lighting. So in those situations you rely on the local SES to turn up with all their lighting equipment and they, they seem to take forever. And when they did get there, they apologised profusely because one of their members hadn't turned up, so they set up their lights turned on, and there's there's their missing member laying in the, the drain at the side of the road. She'd been hit from behind by a drunk driver. It was traumatic for them. They had to leave their equipment and leave the scene. And I dealt with um, that particular victim's family for quite some time. The drunk driver, and he was, I can't remember the level of his drunkenness at at the moment but uh, he ended up contesting the matter at court I mean it it went to trial and on the second day of the trial he pleaded guilty but he put that family through hell you know three years after the collision and I suppose part of their difficulty was they had to deal with me for three years but you know they they were not continually asking ringing up and asking questions they were lovely people they were elderly people she was the last of their children and at 29 years of age so they were in their late 60s early 70s and yeah it uh, was one of the most difficult nights I've ever spent in the police force was taking victim impact statements from them, from them, from that family. You know, they had to move away from their home in Summers, beautiful home right on the beach, moved up near family, other family members near Wood End, just the lasting effects of these things. Do you think when you started, it wasn't, of course, called the Major Collision Investigation Unit, it was the Accident Investigation Unit in 1996. Do you think you really had any idea what you were actually getting into, Trevor? Oh, yeah, look, after doing the course, I had a fairly good idea. Uh, the course itself was um, was a great learning experience. You know, it's, you're, you're meant to go there to learn. You know, doing accident reconstruction, I mean, I'm by no means an expert in that level, you know, working out the speeds that cars were travelling at because it can get pretty complicated depending on the circumstances. But in other circumstances, it's relatively easy and I could work out the easier ones. And I actually had a use for the maths and physics that I learned in Form 5 in Applied Science at school. I often wondered, when am I ever going to use this stuff? And (laughs) there it was doing the accident investigation course. But you learned investigative techniques there, specifically relating to motor vehicle collisions, uh, particularly hit-run collisions where you had to find an offending vehicle and they're, well, not so much the, the offending vehicle. Sometimes they leave the vehicle and leave on foot and you have to find them and track them down. But, you know, the techniques involved in doing that. 
The hardest thing I had to deal with this year was the death of my dear father, William Bill Jackson, registered number 12372. He sadly passed away at 86 years of age on April the 1st. Luckily, I'd sat with Bill several times on the crime couch. So his stories, memories and voice will always be with me. Vale, William Bill Jackson. You spent 40 years in the job and you worked with many chief commissioners. I'm going to name some of them and would you mind just giving me your opinion of them? Selwyn Havelock Porter. He uh, was a very good uh, chief commissioner. He didn't work his way up through the job. He was a manager at Myers before he got the top job. What about Rupert Arnold? He uh, was commonly referred to as Sheep's Head. Is that because of what he looked like or was it about his performance? Yeah, he wasn't uh, much of a chief commissioner and should never have achieved that rank. Noel Wilby. Noel Wilby was um, an ex-homicide squad detective and was very good, but he suffered from a lot of ill health and uh, he didn't remain as chief commissioner for very long and he retired. Reg Jackson. Reg Jackson was very good, no relation to me, but uh, a very practical chief commissioner. Mick Miller. Probably the pick of the lot. Uh, Mick was a great chief commissioner and uh, one of the best uh, that I've ever served under. Kel Glare. Didn't uh, think much of Kel. He was an assistant commissioner and was trying to work his way up to become chief commissioner. But I didn't have uh, much regard for him. You retired, as I said, as a chief super. But of course, Vicpol no longer have that rank. Now, why is that, do you think? And what's been lost? Well, they've flattened the rank structure. They're... These days, there is no rank of chief inspector and there's no rank of chief superintendent, so that they've flattened the structure and, of course, they've, they've cancelled a lot of people's intention to receive higher rank. They're, they're, that opportunity is now not there any longer. A, an inspector today would be an inspector for a long time because there's no chief inspector's job. And the same with the superintendent. He'd be hoping to make chief superintendent no longer that opportunity because the rank's not there. You also worked down the docks, the Victoria docks. Now, these were the days of the wharfies and the painters and dockers and Billy the Texan Longley. Wharfies were fined for even smoking down there. How were police perceived? How were you perceived? Police were disliked, if not hated. You did all your patrols on foot, and when the wharfies had finished their particular shift, they had to go out a special gate, and the police were there, 
and they would search their car, make them get out, open the boot, and they weren't, uh, really weren't liked at all. Well, often the wharfies too had lots of lurks and perks and false bottoms on things, didn't they, and, and uh, ways of secreting goods out. Yes, oh, they, they got up to all the tricks of the trade and I remember on one occasion there was a guy that uh, he was a wharfie and uh, he walked out with a barrow, barrow full of straw and the police on the gate opened up, the, pulled the straw out and there was nothing in the barrow and then short time later he came out with another barrow full of straw and the police looked under that and there was nothing there. He came out five times in all and it was only later that they were notified that five metal barrows had been stolen. Well, Bill, thank you very much for sitting with me today on The Crime Couch. OK, Rochelle, it was a pleasure. for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.